He left uh, yesterday. He asked me to make this announcement about his class on uh, Wednesday night. Uh, There's a class on Wednesday night called the Community Bible Class, and it meets upstairs in the 2040 building. And this class is um, for anyone, whether members or visitors, who want to study first principles of the gospel. And um, it's another title for the class would be Bible 101. Really appreciate Hollis leading singing for us, and it's such a pleasure to be in a congregation where there are good song leaders and good preachers, and, or at least good song leaders. And uh, sometimes with a preacher, there are just things that he has to say that don't fit in the sermon. And so it doesn't count. If you're timing the sermon, don't start yet because this doesn't count, you know. But um, about uh, two or three months ago, um, I got a phone call from a lady in uh, Mississippi. She'd been trying to find someone who was doing mission work in Sudan. And she finally got my name and phone number and called me. The reason she was calling was to tell me about uh, a visit she had had. In, uh, and I'm telling you this because I want you to see how God is opening doors for the Mount Juliet Church in things that we're doing. Maybe not just here in Mount Juliet, but any place in the world. But um, the reason she was calling was to tell me about uh, a visit she'd had about two or three years ago. She was visiting her mother and father in a nursing home here in Nashville. And while visiting, she got acquainted with a man named Samuel who was from Sudan. And as she got acquainted with him, why, she uh, got him started in a Bible correspondence course. And then she introduced him to uh, the congregation that was closest to his home here in Nashville. Samuel was... uh, a refugee from Sudan who had been uh, 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 resettled here in Nashville. And um, he was part of those who had left uh, uh, Sudan because of the Civil War, were accepted as refugees in the United States. Well, Samuel and his family were baptized and became Christians. And she was calling me because she said, Samuel has been back to Sudan and he's made arrangements in his home village Uh, and among his family for a church of Christ to be started there, and he needs a preacher to help him do this. So I called Samuel, we got together, and we visited. And as we visited, I uh, asked him when he was going to be in Sudan. He was going back again soon, and asked him when he was going, and lo and behold, he's going to be there the same time that Griff and I are going to be there. Very same time. And I asked him, Okay, we're looking at a map. I said, okay, where is your home village? So he tells me where his home village is, and lo and behold, it's about four miles off of the road that we are traveling, going from one place to another as we take care of our work in Sudan. So the first day that uh, we're in Sudan, Griff and I will be going, and the others with us will be going to meet Samuel in his home village, and he has made arrangements with his family, with the leaders of the community there for us to start a church of Christ in that community. 
Now, as I visited with him, there are other things that that keeps going through my mind. And as I talked to him, you know, he we're going to be taking Sudanese men and preachers with us, and perhaps one of them can go and help them get this started. But the thing that it keeps going through my mind is that I want to say to Samuel, and I think I do, that Samuel, maybe God wants you to be the preacher for the church in your home village. Because I know that in Ethiopia, a neighboring country, there's a preacher training school held in English, which he could understand and work with. Them. And then, the, you know, the wheels keep turning, and I, I find out that his wife is a you know, nurses aid here in Nashville, and I realized that in his home village of 6,000 people, there are no medical facilities at all. Yesterday, I got word that a, a doctor in Arkansas wants to establish a medical clinic in Sudan. Now, in Sudan, a nurse's aide, especially with the background she has, is perfectly capable of staffing a clinic so you see I have to tell you about these things and Samuel and his family are with us tonight and I, I invite them I want you to meet them and Samuel and, and uh, your family would you stand up so people know where you are and, and you boys too stand up good and tall and uh, this is Samuel you may hear a lot about Samuel okay you can sit down now and You may hear a lot about Samuel. I hope to be able to tell you a lot about the church in that, in that community too. Well, you see, the reason I don't count this as part of the sermon is because if you don't want to know about Sudan, you shouldn't ever ask me to stand up and talk. You know, you're going to hear about it. And besides that, who wants a dumb preacher that would stand up and talk and not tell you about these important things? And, and besides that, it's Griff's fault. Because Griff said to me the other day, he said, Don, we've got to put Sudan more before the congregation. And I said, let's do it. It's not my fault he's not here tonight, but he would say, I love it. You know, you know Griff. Well, now you can start timing. The sermon will start. You know, the Bible is... Um, is like a great mountain range. And in this great mountain range, there are certain peaks. One of those peaks in the, in the Bible is 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. And just the reading of those words is an uplifting, cleansing experience. We want to study part of 1 Corinthians 13 tonight. I, I have eight sermons just on... The characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians 13. I will try not to get into all eight of those tonight. I'll try not to even touch it, you know, but so don't get scared. A few years ago, there was a television story about a little boy about nine or ten years old by the name of Arnie who was retarded. Arnie had left his home because his father laughed at him he beat him. He said he talked funny. And Arnie did because his mouth hung crooked on one side. 
He couldn't form words very well, and he stumbled over them, and he slurred his speech regularly. When he left home, he lived in a large box in an alley with his best friend, Thomas, his cat. And one day, he shoplifted some cat food, some candles for himself, because it was his birthday, and he wanted to celebrate his birthday with his best friend, Thomas. So he opened the cat food tin, put some candles on top of it, and lit them. Then he closed his eyes before he blew the candles out, and he made this wish. I wish that somebody would love me. Some teachers in an elementary school were making the rounds of the school. And going into the boys' restroom, they found a, a little boy in there who had slashed his wrist because he was trying to commit suicide. And when they asked him, he didn't, do, he didn't know how to go about it, so he didn't do a very good job of it. And when they got them bandaged, they asked him, well, why did you do this? And he says, it's because nobody loves me. Now, these may sound like overly dramatic illustrations, but I think to be really honest, that we'd have to all admit that we like to be loved, and it hurts to think that we're not. And for all of our outward toughness, that a lot of us have some aching emotional problems, but just as, like adults, we have learned to hide those and cover up those emotions that children feel. Well, the answer to all of these things is in 1 Corinthians, the 12th and 13th chapter. In 1 Corinthians 12, the latter part of the last verse of the 12th chapter really is part of the 13th chapter. And it says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. And then in the 13th verse, he says, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul is intimating in 1 Corinthians 13 that the church in, uh, in Corinth was uh, confused about spiritual gifts, the miraculous spiritual gifts of the New Testament. There were undoubtedly many Gentiles in the church in Corinth, and probably most of those had come out of paganism with its wild and exotic rites that they had. And um, forgot about this. There. Well, in the church in Corinth... They were probably confused about these spiritual gifts. The Gentiles had come out of this paganism, the wild and exotic rites that they had. And then when they became Christians, they were exposed to these miraculous gifts. And they undoubtedly thought that these were the highest desired qualities of the spiritual life. And then Paul begins to show that uh, the strength of Christian love by comparing it to several spiritual gifts. And the first of these is in verse 1 of chapter 13, 
when he compares miracles to the spe- and speaking in tongues to love. He says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, the ability to speak in tongues in the New Testament, speaking in languages that others could understand without any educational background in those things, that indicated a high state of Christian experience. It was a sign of the presence of the Spirit in the individual. But Paul says if you have these things without love, then it's like having being a a, just a gong or a loud clanging instrument. These were instruments that were used in pagan worship. He says if you don't have love, this that this miraculous gift that you could have, that this is just a tremendous empty noise, unless you have love. Then he compares it in verse two to prophecy. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. He compares it thirdly then to the the ability to have uh, lavish benevolence. Verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. The value of Christian love is shown here that if we had a choice between speaking in languages, speaking in tongues, the ability to have prophecy and understand all mysteries, to have faith so that we can move a mountain over, or the ability to be benevolent so that we could help the poor people and give them everything we have, or even die as a martyr to give ourselves in flames, that it would be better for us to possess the capacity to love people. And he says that without love, all of these miraculous things that he's talking about, the ability to have those is just useless. That our total value as Christians is zero then. I don't know about you, but I'm impressed with the fact that God rates love Christian love we're talking about now as the highest and the finest attribute that one can possess as a Christian. It is superior to all other traits. And the finest Christian then would undoubtedly be the person who is greatest at loving other people. That is undoubtedly what Paul meant when he said that this is the greatest thing in the world, the most excellent way, he says. In The Wizard of the Oz, there's a conversation between Scarecrow and the Tin Woodman. I don't know enough, said Scarecrow cheerfully. My head is stuffed with straw, you know, and that's why I'm going to Oz, to ask him for some brains. Oh, I see, said the Tin Woodman. But after all, brains are not the best thing in the world. Have you any, said the Scarecrow. No, my head is quite empty, answered the tin woodman, but once I had brains and a heart also, and having tried them both, I should much rather have a heart. The date was uh, December the 10th, 1986. The place was Jacksonville, Florida. Richard Romanus, 
who was a teenager and terminally ill with muscular dystrophy, was in, a, was in a shopping spree because a local charity had arranged for him to have a free shopping spree in a, in a store. The clerks and the managers in the store watched as this dying teenager was allowed to go through this store just before Christmas and take anything that he wanted. And as they watched him, they saw that everything that he reached for was for someone else. He selected gifts for his father and his mother and his two brothers, but he selected nothing for himself. This so astounded the store clerks that they wouldn't allow the charity to pay for the spree. And they spoke of it as making their Christmas. Now, when you and I live in a, lie in a casket, what is it that you want people to remember about you? Do you want them to remember how clean you kept your house and that there was never a speck of dirt in it? Do you want them to remember that you had your garage so organized so well and so clean and you could find the tools and you could even get both cars in it? Do you want them to remember how immaculate that you kept your yard and that there was never a rock or a blade that was out of place? Or do you want them to remember that you're a kind, loving, nice person? Which do you want them to remember? You see, folks, the need for love is universal. In some psychological research that was done not long ago, it was found that babies in their first year could be emotionally scarred or even die. This research was precipitated by a problem in an orphanage for babies. There was an orphanage, I believe it was in Brazil, that had 91 babies in it and 27 of them died in the first year and 21 of them became mentally retarded. Now they were in this orphanage receiving excellent food and care. It was determined that these babies were dying and were becoming mentally uh, retarded because they were love-starved. They found that each nurse that worked there had 10 babies. They could only afford a nurse for every 10 babies. And so these nurses then and the babies were receiving only one-tenth of a natural mother's love. And that was causing these babies to gradually suffer a breakdown because they were not receiving love and affection. I remember my wife Sandra coming home from Romania several years ago and telling me about orphanages that she, she visited there and now that they visited these or- orphanages and there were these little children that were, that were standing in their little cribs and holding on to the bars and just looking at them without saying anything or any expression with just blank looks. And you knew that mental retardation was beginning to at least set, set in. Well, now, no one questions at all the child's need for love. But what we need to also recognize is that people of all ages suffer from lack of love too. Dr. Carl Menninger of the famed Menninger Health Clinic in Topeka, Kansas said that the basis of all mental illness is a patient's inability to give and receive love. Now that's a pretty strong statement. I had read that some time before. But one time 
in the particular place we were living, there was a single lady in the congregation. And she lived by herself. And she got sick. And Sandra and I were concerned about her staying alone in her apartment, sick. And so we brought her over to our house. We had a spare bedroom. And, and um, we had her stay with us. In the middle of the night, there were some of the awfulest noises and groans and, and sounds of pain coming out of her bedroom, and it just woke me up and startled me, and I rushed out of my bedroom and into hers as quick as I could because I thought the poor woman is probably dying, and she was carrying on something terribly. I knew she'd got to be really, really sick, and so I got her out of her bed and down the stairs and into the car as fast as I could, and I broke all kinds of speed limits, getting her to the nearest emergency room, the nearest clinic or hospital that I knew of, and got her in there and got her, got her some attention, and then I sat down and waited on them to take care of her and come back and tell me about it, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and waited, and nobody came, and Finally, I decided in my youthful enthusiasm I was going to do something about this. And so I collared the first nurse I could find and wanted to know why they hadn't taken care of her. And this nurse very quietly said to me, there's nothing wrong with her. Well, in talking with this lady and trying to figure out why she acted that way, brought her back home, she went back to sleep and didn't hear a noise from her the rest of the time. And I decided that, you know, she was living in an apartment by herself because she couldn't get along with anybody else. I decided, you know, that really she was probably a classic case of somebody who could not love anybody else. And she wouldn't allow anybody to love her. And it was coming out in these physical symptoms. Eric Fraun, a noted psychoanalyst, declares that the lack of love is at the root of all psychological problems. I read not long ago a heart-rending story of a young father who shot himself to death in the telephone bar, in a telephone booth in a bar. And just before he did this, he called the newspaper and told them what he was going to do and said that there's, asked them that there's a piece of paper in my pocket and I wish you would make arrangements for that to be buried with me. And then he shot himself to death. When they went through his pockets, they found in it a child's crayon drawing that he wanted buried with him. And this child's crayon drawing was signed Shirley Lee. And upon investigating, they found that Shirley Lee was his daughter and she had died in a fire just five months before. And he was so grief-stricken that he'd gone out on the street and asked total strangers to come into her funeral because he wanted her to have a nice funeral. And when she died, he just felt like that all in life was gone. He could not stand the loneliness and the loss. And he shot himself to death. Not too many years ago, a lady responded when I was preaching one Sunday morning. She gave me this note. She said, I am so lonely that on the way to church this morning, I wished that a large vehicle would hit me and kill me so I wouldn't be so lonely. Well, now, you know, we hear stories like that and our hearts are moved and we would say immediately that, well, I would have shown love and kindness to those people and I would have helped them. 
But the tragic thing is, folks, that lonely people do not wear signs saying that I am lonely, please be my friend and please help me. All this loneliness and sadness is disguised behind expressionless faces or happy faces that are just as false as a clown's mask. And these folks are locked in loneliness and they do not know how to break out of this prison. And we, fooled by their veneer, fail to see that lonely soul inside. Now the key to all of that is that if we express Christian love to everybody that we come in contact and we will treat everyone as if they are lonely and then we will be extremely sensitive to the loneliness in some people and learn how to tell it's there. The principles of uh, Christian love can be alive today just like they were in the New Testament in our lives, in our homes, in our churches. Perhaps our homes are struggling Perhaps they're seething with anger and there's division and friction and jealousy. Maybe your personal life is a wreck that's just going somewhere to happen. And all of this can be turned around with the practice of Christian love. And the same thing is true in a church too. And there, folks, is no justifiable excuse for someone not loving other people because that is the one talent within the reach of every human being. Dale Galloway, in his, uh, his book, uh, Dream a New Dream, tells a story about little Chad. He says little Chad was a sly, shy, quiet young fella. One day he come home and came home and told his mother he'd like to make a valentine for everyone in his class. Her heart sank. She thought, I wish he wouldn't do that because she had watched the children when they walked home from school. Her Chad always was behind them. They laughed and hung on to each other and talked to each other, but Chad was never included. Nevertheless, she decided she would go along with her son, so she purchased the paper and the glue and the crayons, and for three whole weeks, night after night, Chad painstakingly made 35 valentines. Valentine's Day dawned, and Chad was beside himself with excitement. He carefully stacked them up, put them in a bag, and bolted out the door. His mom decided to bake him his favorite cookies and serve them up warm and nice with a cool glass of milk when he came home from school. She just knew he would be disappointed. Maybe that would ease the pain a little. It hurt her to think that he probably wouldn't get any Valentines, maybe none at all. That afternoon, she had the cookies and the milk on the table. And when she heard the children outside, she looked out the window. Sure enough, here they came, laughing and having the best time. And as always, there was Chad in the rear. He walked a little faster than usual. She fully expected him to burst into tears as soon as he got inside. His arms were empty, she noticed, and when the door opened, she choked back the tears. Mommy has some warm milk and cookies for you. But he hardly heard her words. He just marched right on by, his face aglow, and all he could say was, not a one, not a one. And her heart sank. And then he added, I didn't forget a single one, not a single one. And so it is when God is in control of the servant mind, 
We realize as never before that life's greatest joy is to give his love away. A thought that brings to mind the saying, It isn't a song until it's sung. It isn't a bell until it's rung. It isn't love until it's given away. You know, folks, that Christian love is, is like electricity. If you've ever noticed an electrical cord, you know that there are, there are two wires to it. One wire is for the electricity to go in, the other wire is for the electricity to go out. And God's love is like electricity. It can't get into us unless it can get out of us and share itself with others. Perhaps this one of the reasons that it is so important that Christians love each other then. Christian love is not only good, but it works as well. The world is waiting today for a great society that will cross all political, racial, religious, and social lines because it's God's intention that the whole human race be made a brotherhood and that Christ began this stupendous work by making the church a brotherhood. And the followers of Jesus must live as brothers to one another if ever other men are to be attracted to this idea of brotherhood in Christ. Another obvious reason is that living the Christian life and avoiding wrong will be easier then because we have the Christian bonds of love and the brotherhood and brothers and sisters to lean on. See if these scriptures don't mean more to you now. First of all, there's Philippians, the second chapter in verse 2. Paul says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And the second is 1 Peter 2 and verse 17. Love the brotherhood of believers. And then the third is Colossians 2 and verse 2. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. God means for Christian love to be thicker than blood. Family ties should keep people close, but the ties of the Christian family is stronger than the natural family. Love between Christians is to be so strong even that no differences may ever divide us. One obligation that Christians have to each other is explained by Paul in Romans the 13th chapter and verse 8. He says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. How many heartaches could be caused that are caused by church troubles might have been avoided if only they were filled with the love that the New Testament teaches. And folks, when we talk about our churches and our congregation and how proud we are of them, let's don't talk about the numbers in the church or the wealth in the church or the prestige of the church. Let's tell them about the brotherly love that awaits them in that church as a Christian because that's what they're really hungry for. 
In John 13 and verse 35, it is extremely significant to me that Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. You notice as important as it is, he did not say, By this baptism shall all men know that you are my disciples. And he didn't say, By this fact that you attend services in the church three times a week shall all men know that you are my disciples. And he didn't say by the fact that you, 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 you follow the teachings of church organization and church worship in the New Testament, by that all men shall know that you're my disciple. Those things are important and we cannot over-exaggerate them. But it is love, he says, that people are going to know that you're my disciples. Why would he say that? I think it is because love will draw people to Jesus Christ and then these other things won't even be a matter of dispute. It is possible for us sometimes to be as straight as a gun barrel theologically and as empty as one spiritually. We can become so severe in criticizing false doctrines without love. We need to remember that it was Paul who wrote Galatians 1, 8 and 9, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel than that which we, have re- which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. The same apostle Paul who wrote that also wrote 1 Corinthians 13. And as Vance Havner says, that unless we can get that combination, we're going to be theological hawkshaws and doctrinal detectives religious bloodhounds with hot heads and cold heart just looking for heretics. Edwin Markham wrote a story about a shoemaker who was a devout Christian and how that one night he had a dream. He dreamed that night that Jesus was going to come to his shop to see him personally. He was so convinced that the dream was was going to become a reality that he started making preparations for Jesus to come that day to see him. He went out and bought the most expensive food that he could find to feed Jesus when he came. He decorated his home in a way that would be appropriate to receive the Lord. But that day, while he waited for Jesus to come, an old beggar man came. He was old. He was a beggar. He was down on his luck. His shoes were worn out. And he gave him a new pair of shoes out of the love of his heart. Then that same day, while he waited for Jesus, an old woman came by and she was tired and hungry. And he took some of that expensive food that he was saving for Jesus to feed him and he gave some to the old woman. Then while he was waiting for Jesus to come, he stepped out on the street and he saw a child in tears. The little child was lost and couldn't find the way home. He picked her up and comforted her and he took her home on the other side of town. And then he returned home for Jesus to come and visit him. And he waited and he waited and evening came and then darkness. He became sad and finally he just cried out and he said, Why is it, Lord, that your feet delay? Did you forget that this was the day? Then soft in the silence a voice he heard. Lift up your heart, for I kept my word. I was the beggar with bruised feet. I was the woman you gave to eat. I was the child on the homeless street. Someone has written that Christians ought to be spendthrifts in love. 
Love is the one treasure that multiplies by division. It is the one gift that grows bigger the more you take from it. It is the one business on which it pays to be an absolute spendthrift. Give it away. Throw it away. Splash it over. Empty your pockets. Shake the basket. Turn the glass upside down. And tomorrow you will have more than ever. Remember, folks, we can judge how far we will rise on the scale of life by asking ourselves one simple question. How deeply do I care? To be Christianized is to be sensitized. For Christians are people who care. There's no one anywhere that can come into authentic contact with Jesus Christ without beginning to care. Because Christian love is the highest expression a man has to his maker and to his fellow man. Leo Biscaglia was a professor of education at the University of Southern California. He had badgered for quite some time the administration of the university to let him teach a course on love. And his persistence paid off finally, and they let him teach the course. He said that the reason he wanted to teach the course was because of the girl in the seventh row. He said the girl in the seventh row was in 1969, and she was a young student. She was beautiful. She was bright. She made excellent grades. One night she drove her car out to the cliff of Pacific Palisades, got out, and jumped to her death. She left no note of explanation, no hint as to why she did it. Reflecting on her death, he said that he couldn't teach the world about love and feel the emptiness of all of it, but maybe he could teach 100. It is said that that class became the most sought-after class in an American university. That shouts that something is missing in our educational system, probably, doesn't it? In that class and the things that they talked about, they carried over into casual campus contacts. Like, for instance, a student would be out and they would meet someone and they would smile and say hello to that person. The person would usually stop and say, do I know you? And the student would say, no, but wouldn't it be nice? They said that sometimes, occasionally, someone would say, no. One of the requirements for each one of the students in the class was to do something for someone else. Some of the students were quite creative about doing things for someone else, and others of them weren't quite so creative. Joel was one of those students in the class who couldn't think of anything to do. One day, the professor said, come with me. He took him down the street to a nursing home. They walked in, and there were these little old ladies sitting in their chairs, lined up along the wall, in their cotton gowns, staring at the floor. They were lonely, afraid, bitter. Joel said, well, what am I going to do? The professor said, I don't know. Then he said, see that elderly woman over there? Go over there and say hello to her. Joel said, is that all? He said, yes. He walked up and said hello to her, and she eyed him suspiciously, and she said, are you a relative? And he said, no. She said, good, because I hate all my relatives. <laughs> and she invited him to sit down, and she talked and talked and talked. 
Joel went back one day a week. That was became known nursing home as Joel's day. On that day, those elderly ladies began to fix up their hair and they dressed in their finest. One day, Dr. Basalia said that one fall day, he was looking out his office window and he looked out and he saw 30 elderly people shuffling down the sidewalk. Leading them was Joel. He was taking them to a USC football game. Dr. Basalia said that uh, seeing that scene was the greatest triumph of his educational career. And what an, edu- what an incredible statement it is that we can make people happy by seeing lonely, unhappy people become happy. You see, it is being a loving person is is not really easy. In chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians 1, it says, um, follow after love. That's a conclusion of chapter 13 for us. Now that word follow after could also be translated pursue, which means that love isn't something that just happens. It has to be sought. It has to be desired. It has to be pursued. It is something in which we must pray and discipline ourselves. And far from being an automatic possession, it is a supreme achievement of our lives. Love is the greatest thing in our religion. It is the greatest thing that I can do for you. It is the greatest thing that you can do for me. And the tragedy of life is that sometimes it is non-existent or it is one-sided. And the greatest thing about the Bible and Christianity is that here is Christian love and there isn't any place else that you can find it or even know about it. How do you get it? Well, it springs to life when Christ lives again in a man who's given himself absolutely and unreservedly to him. There was a little boy that was having trouble staying in an orphanage because it was always causing problems. And one day the board of another orphanage was meeting and they were considering whether to admit him and let him stay there or not. And as they were discussing it, they noticed this little boy that he ran past the wind and he jumped this fence and he ran out to this tree and pinned a note on the tree. And that was absolutely forbidden there and they decided to use that as a reason to reprimand him and to pass him on to another orphanage. The man from the board was dispatched to go get the little boy in the note and he went and he got the note and he brought it back and he read it and then he passed it on to other members of the board and then their heads hung low because there was a note in crayon on that piece of paper that said, Whoever finds this, I love you. Is this not the real message of the Bible? Is this not what God says to us on every page of the Bible? Is this not the story of the cross? Is this not the message of every Christian? And is this the message that we carry? And tonight, 
If you're not a Christian, you can get started on that kind of life. And that's a better life than you're going to find any place else. And you can do so by coming and talking with us about it. We'll get started on it right now while we stand and sing.